0: Uh, another thing that you were talking about is uh, this idea of opponent processing.
1: So when we go back to look at the arts that actually work, the arts that are functional against a resisting opponent, one of the things they all have in common is they all have, they, they tend to all be sports. Yeah. And because they're sports, the results matter
2: mm-hmm. to the
1: people. They want to win the sport. And because the results matter, they go to the epistemology, they go to is some form or another, some the, the variant grades of, of effectiveness and sustainability and all kinds of things, but it's one form or another of an opponent process. It's one form or or another of a competition. That is the link, I think, to science and to critical thinking. And if we think about science, not as it sometimes happens when it's done poorly, but as it's supposed to happen, uh, essentially uh, you have an expert in the field who puts forward a hypothesis or a series of experiments to other Equally qualified experts in the field who are then going to try and tear down and disprove that hypothesis and, and those experiments And what remains at the end of that should be a little truer in the sense of a direct uh, a Measurement that's likely to admit to ever-increasing Refinement than what we had in the beginning and What is that if that's not a competition? It's an opponent process um, And so anywhere where the results matter whether we're talking about business uh, or we're talking about the military or we're talking about sports or we're talking about some place where people want to win We go back to an opponent process as soon as the results cease to matter And that no longer becomes people's true motivation whether they recognize it or not Sometimes the opponent process is quickly taken out because it's a lot of work um, And and you always have to engage the ego with the opponent process uh, you have to be willing to say if you're a scientist Yeah, I'm wrong or to go back to the drawing board, or if you're a martial artist, a, a jiu-jitsu player, of course, to tap a 1,000 times over. Um, and so that gets removed pretty quickly, and then what you get left with is a, basically a cultural affectation of, you know, like a flower arrangement. And, and so you'll have something like aikido, which purports to do everything jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu can actually do. But in reality, they've, they've taken the opponent process completely out, and as a result, what you're left with is just a series of, of patterns.
0: Welcome to the evolve move play podcast where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world. Some of the most amazing movement thinkers and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory strength conditioning and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys, as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. So this week our guest is Matt Thornton and this is a interview I was very excited about. He's somebody I've been meaning to have on the podcast for a long time, but I wanted to get dig deeper into his work because there's so much there. Um, I started my jiu-jitsu training or the second time I went to jiu-jitsu was under one of his students. Um, his affiliate system is called the Straight Blast Gym. Um, he's founded, uh, Founded the idea of aliveness. And you guys have heard me talk about aliveness multiple times. He's the first guy to coin that and talk about that in relationship to the martial arts. So I'm really excited to share him with you guys. We spoke for an hour and 50 minutes because there's just so much for us to cover. I'm definitely planning to have him on again. So I think this is going to be a really wonderful podcast. We can get to it in just a second. Before we do, I just want to make a quick announcement. Due to the coronavirus situation, we have offered a special deal on our natural parkour membership. We're giving people a 50% off discount so that you can get yourself set up and training when you don't have access to a gym. So if you want to get that done, go ahead and uh, click the link in the description. Um, there's going to be lots of resources down there as well for those of you who are following everything in this podcast. So super interesting episode. Without further ado, Matt Thornton. Matt, it's a real pleasure to have you. I uh, learned a lot of my jujitsu under one of your students and um, have admired your work for many years. So I want to start uh, with something that I know is very dear to your heart. I want you to tell me what epistemology is, what it means to you, and why it's so important for having an effective approach to martial arts. Sure.
1: Um, My original Quest, I guess you could say, when I was a kid, starting when I was very little uh, with martial arts was to try and figure out what worked and what didn 't work. I was just obsessed with that question, um, a lot of people are I think that was probably the the motivation uh, besides marketing behind the first UFC yep. you know to fit different styles of martial arts together and see what worked and what didn 't work mm-hmm. and through training in my early 20s uh, the conclusion I came to was that the arts that work um, all had a a basis in sport. And the arts that didn't all had in common um, sclerotic patterns, dead patterns that they had accumulated, which was terms that Bruce Lee himself also used. And the distinction between the two wasn't necessarily in the techniques. So for example, you can find very similar submissions and techniques in Japanese Jiu Jitsu, considering that's the origin of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, as you can find in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, but you can take I'm painting with a broad brush, but very often you can take somebody as a blue belt, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and they're going to wipe the floor with a, you know, a, a black belt master in Japanese jujitsu. And the difference there is the training method, the epistemology. It's not so much just like with philosophy, like with science, it's not so much the quest, the uh, answer that's important, but it's the way it, it's how we arrived at that answer. Yeah. If we don't understand how we arrived at that answer, then the best we're doing uh, is guessing. And so, um, the term that I, I started to use a long time ago for what worked and what didn't work was aliveness because I found that much more useful than trying to make a long list of arts that that worked and arts that didn't. And uh, I realized that once somebody really understands what I mean by aliveness, and when they understand when I'm talking about aliveness, I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about full-context sparring, mm-hmm. but I'm talking about something that's outside of a pattern that incorporates timing, movement and energy, a certain amount of pressure. And once people start to kind of get, wrap their mind around that, and they understand it, and I think lots of people do, it's it's a basically a a bulletproof um, bullshit detector for people, and it becomes more or less impossible to be fooled by martial arts. Whereas you can see even today, some of my friends sometimes will send me videos of of really good fighters, you know, boxers and, and MMA fighters who get fooled by some goofy martial arts hokery there's a there's a mma fighter right now who's quite good who's being trained by a ridiculous you know systema guy who's just a con artist
0: sanchez i believe
1: you're referring to yeah but you know it's it's like back in the day back in the 70s you had physicists and phds at the stanford research institute getting fooled by what was really a two-bit magician and yuri geller Mm -hmm. and that's just because they didn't know the tools of magic and and somebody like johnny carson or um you know, Penn and Teller could look and immediately see, or the amazing Randy, of course, look and immediately see what they were doing and, and how silly it was and be able to replicate it um, just as we can with with, uh, when we have an understanding of aliveness with these fake martial arts. So, so that's why I put the emphasis on aliveness. That's always where I start. If people have that, then they can then go forward on their own um, and learn functional martial arts at whatever pace they want.
0: Yeah. So just a background for the audience, in case anyone's not familiar, epistemology, if I'm correct, is the um, is a study of how we understand truth or, you know, like, how do we determine what is true?
1: Yeah, I, I, one of my friends who's a philosophy professor, uh, Peter Boghossian, I think he has a, puts it very simply, which is answer-seeking method. So it's our answer-seeking method. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, so I know you're friends with, with Peter Bogosian. and you're friends with Sam Harris. So in addition to your work in martial arts, you're also thinking about this from a philosophical level. And yeah, so let's talk about aliveness for a second. I, so I just wrote an essay about this on my, on my website, but I started to think that there's a kind of, um, a convergence between, uh, the aliveness philosophy and martial arts um, what What's happening with parkour to a degree, and then also um, what's happening in the team sport world. So I'm, I'm curious if you've ever thought about the what world? Life, I'm sorry, the team sport world. Okay, have you ever taught aliveness to like football players or explained that in that
1: world? Not uh, a team as a whole, but we've certainly had football players come through the gyms, especially in uh, places like Ireland and the UK. I know John Kavanaugh's had some some pretty well-known football players come through.
0: I don't know how familiar you are with team sport, but one thing that you'll see a lot in training for team sport, and this is, this is quite an interesting thing if you think about what's happening right now with, with like injury rates in the NFL, is um, a lot of the training that is done outside of play or team sport practice is basically dead pattern training, right? So what you'll see is things like cone drills or agility ladder drills. So what I had the realization is, is basically a three cone drill to build agility is a kata. It's the same, it's the same principle, right? Mm-hmm. And so now we have the rise of a number of thinkers who are talking about you can basically, you can't develop agility that has high transfer to the field without having another player that you're interacting with.
1: Right. Cause there's Cause no timing.
0: Exactly. There's no, there's no perceptual linking or awareness of where the other guy is and how you, how you respond to him so it really doesn't matter what your three cone drill is if you can't read the other guy if you can't react to the other guy
1: yeah it's and funny so, because back in the day uh people like dan and asano and some other instructors when they would be defending dead patterns would always go back to things like three cone drills or hit, or uh robotic patterns that football players and other people do and i would explain that that's a conditioning drill mm-hmm. but you're not going to get timing uh, when you're working in that like, for the for all the reasons you just explained there's there's no there's no feedback mechanism there's no opponent process which is what gives you that timing yeah
0: yeah so i was thinking about that and then i was thinking about um parkour is a kind of interesting thing because so i you know some years ago i noticed that parkour was sort of becoming focused on just this aesthetic expression that you could you could impress people with on on youtube but it one of the ideas that we were taught that was at the origin of it was this idea of, could you actually escape or reach an emergency situation? Mm -hmm. And, and at the time I was thinking about this and I was like, well, you have to be able to escape someone chasing you. How do you respond to someone chasing you? How do you behave when someone's chasing you? Not when it's just you and the obstacle. Um, And then also, you know, if you're having to chase somebody down. So we started drilling and adding in these elements to what we're doing, but I've noticed that parkour basically has has created a level of athleticism and general movement competence. That's really extraordinary in a very short period of time as it's generally practiced. Um, basically, you know, I I look at the relevant comparisons as track and field and gymnastics. And if we compare parkour athletes to, to, uh, to gymnasts, we now know that the best parkour athletes in the world can flip as many times and spin as many times as, as the best gymnasts, right? You know, so if you're dismounting off of a high bar, there are athletes now in parkour who do tricks that are as, as advanced as the best gymnasts or very close to as advanced. Um, if you look at jumping distances, parkour athletes generally don't get to run for as long and they don't have the as high a peak speed. Um, mm-hmm. But if you control for that, I think that we're probably at about 90% of the, the jumping distances that we're seeing in elite track and field. Wow. And
1: <coughs> this what is really that? What's that? What are you attributing that to? Sorry.
0: Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm getting to. So I think this is an extraordinary thing because these people are training primarily without coaches. Mostly they started later in their lives and you know, this sport's only been around for 20 years. What I think is happening is basically that uh, when you exp like imagine somebody who spars with one guy all the time versus somebody who spars with a wide variety of sparring partners, mm-hmm. the more sparring partners that the person has, the more they're going to be able to read all the different constraints, all the different kind of movement potentials of a new sparring partner, and be able to respond to it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So running down the same runway to do the same jump every time, mm-hmm. it, it's it's almost a de- it's basically a dead pattern, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're when you're uh, when you're jumping around and you have to solve a new jumping problem every time that you go out, you're finding new problems to solve. You're essentially tuning the nervous system to be um, more able to solve problems better in general. And so you're creating a smarter movement athlete.
1: At real time. In real time. Yeah. So that's I... Interesting. That's interesting. I don't... Uh, how would you control for selection? Because there's going to be a certain type of person that's going to be interested in parkour that has a certain level of, I guess, bravery, for lack of a better term, right?
0: <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's very hard. I don't think there's a, uh, a good way to perfectly select for it. So this is just a... Uh, you know, a little bit of speculation based off of observation. And then we, we have to try it out method, you know, empirically and methodologically and see what kind of results we get. Yeah. Um, I am working on getting some better data from various people to really try, you know, get more clarity on this, but are you familiar with the idea of the constraints led approach? No. Okay. So I think that what I, I, I'm really excited about this because I think that what you described with aliveness is the constraints led approach. And I thought that that was partially true before I started researching your method. But as I read more about your method, I realized it was more true than I thought.
1: Okay.
0: But the constraints led approach basically says that athletes have to organize themselves in uh, relationship to an environment of constraints, right? Mm-hmm. Or an environment of, you can think of it as affordances, like, when you're John Jones and you've got an 84-inch reach and the guy in front of you has a 74-inch reach, you know, I, I was just watching him fight Shogun last night, right? Do you remember that fight? No. Okay, so, you know, he he won his championship from Shogun. from. Uh, right. if you watch, oh,
1: yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah.
0: yeah, if you watch that fight, you'll see that the distance that he fights at is incredibly far, right? He has the ability to hit Shogun from so f- much further than Shogun can hit him. Yeah. And basically you can see Shogun's an amazing athlete, great champion, incredibly tough, but he just can't solve the problem of this guy can hit me from a foot further than I can hit him. Sure. So if you think about that as a, as a performer, Jones sees a landscape of, um, of what is afforded to him at his length and with his athletic abilities. So you have, the constraints that are the, the the constraints of your body and what you are, the constraints of the environment, and the constraints of the task, right? So, um, headbutting is a constraint, right? You're not allowed to headbutt in in Muay Thai, and you are allowed to headbutt in way and that changes how you do clinch work completely.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's like a constraint, right? So classically if i want to improve somebody's jump shot right i might instruct them through a bunch of technical drills and verbal instructions how to improve their jump shot they're lacking arc on their shot um but a constraint would be to just put put a higher barrier between them and the shot so they have to arc over so what i was thinking is essentially when you talk about energy timing and rhythm those are the those are the fundamental constraints that someone has to have in order to attune themselves effectively to the stuff that actually happens in a fight.
1: Yes. They have to have all three pieces of energy, time, and motion. Otherwise, it's not truly alive, right? Exactly. And they're basically three sides of the same object, just a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Same thing.
0: Yeah. So... um So when an athlete, so what the constraints led thing is saying is like more and more of your time has to be spent on, it has to be, you're going to get better transfer, better athletes when more of their time is spent with stuff that's more representative of the actual task they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's adaptions that your body makes to doing three cone drills, just like the adaptions that you make to doing kata, right? Sure. Um, But you're just getting a lot less of the adaption that you actually need to express in a fight or in the field of play.
1: Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So this is, this is what I've been, <laughs> about
1: a lot and, uh,
0: I just, um, yeah, I think it's a, a really exciting idea. You mm-hmm. know, uh, another thing that you were talking about is this idea of opponent processing. Right.
1: Yeah, that's the connection I think to that. That's the best and easiest way. When I give a, talks about critical thinking and relation to martial arts, which I do a couple times a year at the university, that's the best way to connect the two, is to talk about the opponent process.
0: Yeah, Let's, Can you can you explain a little bit more about that? Like how you see that from martial arts, and then also how that, where that comes from the philosophical side.
1: Sure. So when we go back to look at the arts that actually work the arts that are functional against a resisting opponent one of the things they all have in common is they all have they, they tend to all be sports yeah. and because they're sports the results matter mm-hmm. to the people they want to win the sport and because the results matter they go to the epistemology they go to is some form or another some the variant grades of, of effectiveness and sustainability and all kinds of things but it's one form or another of an opponent process it's one form or, or another of a competition yeah and um, that is the link I think to science and to critical thinking and if we think about science not as it sometimes happens when it's done poorly but as it's supposed to happen uh, essentially uh, you have an expert in the field who puts forward a hypothesis or a series of experiments to other Equally qualified experts in the field who are then going to try and tear down and disprove that hypothesis and, and those experiments And what remains at the end of that should be a little truer in the sense of a direct uh, a Measurement that's likely to, to admit to ever-increasing refinement than what we had in the beginning and What is that if that's not a competition? It's an opponent process um, and so anywhere where the results matter whether we're talking about business uh, or we're talking about the military or we're talking about sports or we're talking about some place where people want to win we go back to an opponent process as soon as the results cease to matter and that no longer becomes people's true motivation whether they recognize it or not sometimes the opponent process is quickly taken out because it's a lot of work um, and and you always have to engage the ego with the opponent process uh, you have to be willing to say if you're a scientist yeah I'm wrong. Or to go back to the drawing board, or if you're a martial artist, a, a jiu-jitsu player, of course, to tap a thousand times over. Um, and so that gets removed pretty quickly. And then what you get left with is a, basically a cultural affectation of, you know, like a flower arrangement. And, and so you'll have something like a which purports to do everything jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu can actually do. But in reality, they've, they've taken the opponent process completely out and as a result, what you're left with is just a series of, of patterns.
0: Yeah. A friend of mine I was talking to actually, our most recent podcast was proposing this idea of thinking about these as fitness functions as well. I think mm-hmm. that, that, uh, you have to have a form of feedback that allows an idea to die.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So That's when awesome. I do jujitsu, you know, I can try something out and if I get choked every time that I try it, then I start to learn that that idea doesn't work, you know, or, yeah. you know, classically like, um, you know, First reaction that most people are gonna have when they try Jiu Jitsu is when somebody's on top of them and pressuring them, they're just gonna push with their arms. Right. All right. And when you get arm barred enough times, whether you're instructed that that's a bad idea or not, eventually you're gonna figure it out because you're gonna be running into that fitness function over and over again. The only way to get a fitness function that is, that is meaningful in some sense is to have an opponent processor. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, Peter calls that uh, self-correcting mechanism, and that would be the connection to. I believe that's a critical thinking term, but that would be the connection to to critical thinking as well. What is the correct? What is the correcting mechanism for your belief? Yeah. So when he's arguing with somebody that believes, you know, whatever the Earth is flat or you name it, one of the things he usually begins with after getting the person to recognize the fact that there's such a thing as objective truth, which is kind of where you have to always start with these conversations. is used to ask them, um, is there anything I could say, anything I could show you, anything that could be shown to you as proof that would get you to change your mind. Mm-hmm. And if the answer to that is no, then of course you can't have a rational conversation with the person, but whatever that thing is that could get them to change their mind becomes the self-correcting mechanism for that person. And the opponent process always incorporates, by definition, a strong self-correcting mechanism in, within it. So like, as you said, in jujitsu, if your choke's not working, your choke's not working. Yeah. And uh, there's no way around that. Whereas in Aikido, the person's going to take a fall for you one way or the other.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think um, one, one nice way to think about this is, it, so you have your opponent processing, and then you have, like, how, how well can you get that environment to give you feedback,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? The, the more the more the more appropriately information dense the feedback is, the the more self correcting the training
1: is over time. Absolutely, absolutely. So, for most of the coaches uh, in SBG, over the last ten years, what we've been focused on is creating self correcting mechanisms and opponent processes that are sustainable. Mm-hmm. Where we're getting is as, as much value for the athlete as we can, as you just said, the, the best possible feedback in a way that's safe and not gonna cause brain damage and not gonna get them injured prior to, prior to their fight, not gonna get them injured on the mat. Um, and that's kind of our, been our focus. Um, different aspect of, of the self-correcting mechanism, which is why, like I, I said, there'd be a, a, a gradient in there but in, where you could measure based on things like sustainability. And the quality of the information that you're getting back.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit because so this is one thing, you know, I've always had a bit of a strong self defense orientation in the way that I've looked at martial arts. It's like I enjoy the process of training jujitsu, I enjoy the process of training kickboxing. Um, but like I, I'm always curious, like, I want to know that I could use this if I had to. Like what's the point of putting all this energy in and taking all these hits if if I'm not gonna if I'm not gonna respond effectively? Right. So like one thing we do is we spar uh, bare knuckle, me and my, my core tra- group of training students, right? Mm-hmm. But we, we end up playing multiple games because the bare knuckle game is a game that we have to play with very limited levels of force, mm-hmm. you know, because we don't want to have cuts on our face and, you know, giant bruised knuckles all the time, right? So we, we can learn the affordance landscape of, okay, I can use my hands in a certain way. I can slip through guards in a certain way. My hands are bare, um, but there's all this chance for bullshit to to be generated in the bare knuckle sparring because it's too slow compared to a real sparring, looking to a real fight, because right? you have to slow it down. Therefore, it, it lacks feedback that you need. So we have to put the gloves on and try to go at a speed that's more appropriate. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious. Like I know in the early days, you know, I was watching some of your your um, your footage. Uh, Made rough. I, yeah like in the early days you guys were fighting basically all right yeah. pretty much no hold barred um as you were trying to figure out what truth was in martial arts
1: right yeah if i could go back i would change a lot of that because um we didn't know anywhere near what we know now about traumatic brain injury but you know there was enough information out there that that we all should have been myself especially should have been more cautious about that um so i i do regret quite a bit of that just because of the wear and tear put on the on the athletes' brains. We don't do that now. Um, And I think some people's MMA fans might be surprised. Uh, Obviously the biggest, most successful branch of SPGs fighting is run by uh, one of my black belts, John Kamenok, who I think is the best MMA coach in the world right now. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people might be surprised at how light a lot of the contact is for a good percentage of the sparring that they do. And, we also know one of the other things we know is, you know, that kind of damage is cumulative. So, so a fighter who gets knocked out in training or who te- who's taken a lot of hits is far more apt to get knocked out. Yeah. So we want to minimize all of that. Like, like you just explained very well, there's a, a line you have to walk there, <clears throat> but when you're dealing with some of these guys, they've been boxing, you know, Connor's been boxing since he was a, teenager since a boy um he knows what's realistic and what's not realistic his training partners know what's realistic and what's not realistic and and honestly i think you could take any intelligent fighter and get them to a point within three or four years where they'd have a really good handle on what's realistic energy and what's not realistic energy yeah. and the, the trick after that from that point forward is getting them the motions not to get ramped up when they're sparring. uh to keep it at that more playful level, and that's hard. And John himself has said it took him a couple of years to really dial it in with the team. But the vast majority of the sparring they do is not with the big gloves; it's with the MMA gloves hmm. to to minimize, like I said, a lot of the the brain contact. And I actually really like the idea that you're not wearing gloves at all. I would prefer that MMA had no gloves. Me too. Gloves primarily just help prevent cuts and allow the guys to hit each other harder. Yeah. So if I had my way, excuse me. If I had my way, I'd go back to the to the first UFC and just have them do bare knuckle. I know that seems to people that don't understand the sport that might seem more barbaric, but I actually think it's the opposite.
0: Yeah, because the guys aren't going to be able to hit. You know, you have to be so much more careful with your hand. Yes. I think you'd see people grapple more too. It'd be interesting to see that and other hand strikes as well. Like when we when we spar, you know, if my opponent's ducking his head down like this, you know, that hook is going to be a it's going to be a, a slap, right? <laughs> or a palm strike to the top of the head because knuckles to, to forehead is bad for knuckles.
1: Yeah. I remember back in the day, you probably remember as well, when Boss Root would knock people out with a, with a right palm to the belly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, one of my favorite boxers when I was younger in my early 20s, he was fighting uh, at the same time. He was a, peer, a lighter, lighter weight boxer, but he was a peer of Mike Tyson. And he was on the undercard of the Mike Tyson-Razor Ruddock fight. Uh, I believe he's Australian, but Jeff Fennec. Mm-hmm. Uh and Tyson himself said he was the one guy that he didn't want to fight in a in a in the in the ring, even though Fennec's a lightweight. I think he was being nice, but Jeff hit incredibly, incredibly hard. Had a lot of inside fighting and grappling, and would do kind of throws and other things that are a little unusual for for boxing. And if you go back and watch some of those fights, I, I believe he was fighting Jacob. Uh, I think his last name was Zuma, but I can't remember right now. Um, anyway, my point behind all that is Fennec's career was cut short very very early, unfortunately, because he kept breaking his hands. Yeah. Through the gloves, through the wraps, there's only so hard. Once you get to a point where you're really hitting that hard as a human being, your hands are, are just going to start breaking. And so taking the gloves off really can minimize a lot of the potential brain damage that the athletes are going to face.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in the idea of what would MMA look like if guys had no gloves on because they couldn't they couldn't engage in some of these slugfests that they're engaging in, right? Or they would have to adopt uh, open-hand strikes. And I'm curious how much they would use open-hand strikes versus fists. I'm not convinced that the fist would disappear. I think it, it has its applications. I think that uh, you what I found in my sparring is When someone is giving me certain opportunities, then I'll use the fist, right? Fist to the body. If a guy pulls back and leaves his chin, the lower part of his head open, then then I'm going to use that. But if he's got his head down and he's got his guard up, it's like there's no point in throwing my hands at that (laughs) monstrous set of bones that can easily break them.
1: Right. In the the old school Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, when they would take mount and get a position like a gift wrap, they would always be using the open hands because you're going to bust your knuckles on the back of the person's skull. Right. And you're just trying to get them to open up for a choke anyway. The fists were usually strikes to the body or very targeted to the nose or something like that. But if you just, if you're just slugging them out, you want to open up the hands usually down there. The flip side of that is there's a study. um, I I can't think of exactly where it was published right now, but it was brought to my attention by uh, one of our instructors, Paul Sharp, where there was actually a, uh, I believe it was an anthropologist that did a study, saying that uh, maybe it was an evolutionary biologist. But anyway, that one of the reasons our hands develop the way the way they actually have is as weapons, and and. Uh, I've read that study. Yeah. Yeah, you can. Uh, People will ask me that question when I when I do uh, talks, and, and the answer I generally give them, just to keep it as simple as possible, is you can hurt your wrist either way. You can op- you can hit somebody in the head with an open palm and hurt your wrist. Yeah. You can punch somebody in the face with a hit a fist and break your knuckles. So there's always a hazard when you're hitting another human. Yeah, I
0: mean, well, we you know we kick people, right? Yeah. Martial arts and people break their feet too, right? Yeah. Toes. Um, you know, people think like a lot of times I hear like self defense. Reality-based self-defense guys talk about like you never you never use a punch. You have to use an open palm, um, and they they t- tend to pretend that throwing your hand. They tend to portray it as if throwing your open palm at somebody is safe too. But it's like you can easily get a finger broken. Exactly. Your, your palm get a bit open. back. Yeah. So, you know, there's more risks, mm-hmm. which, which is interesting because I think that you'd you'd see that the grappling would become a little bit more, um, more of a focus, I suspect, in, in MMA if you didn't have gloves, because essentially they just, they make your hands more
1: effective weapons. Absolutely, and obviously the biggest, the biggest thing that would change that is just the time limit. If they, they increase the time and stop breaking them up when they went to the ground, it would go back to what many of the first UFC's look like, or the very early Vale Tudo fights in Brazil where they'd be on the ground for an hour, yeah. I love that kind of thing personally because I'm a grappler and I would love to watch that but I as a spectator sport it might not be that interesting for a lot of people.
0: There's a lot of not very good jiu-jitsu in the MMA currently,
1: right? There is. There's also a lot of really good jiu jitsu too. If you, you know, if you think about it like uh Rooney and uh yeah, there's quite a few. I like, I love to watch Ryan Hall. Uh, yes, Ryan's very good. Yeah
0: guys like that yeah whenever i see a jiu-jitsu match where you see guys who can really switch positions quickly who have lots of different submissions to attack who can you know see tons of opportunities then the ground becomes very engaging but a lot of it is just one guy has guard he's just going to close his guard try to survive to the end of the round and the other guy's just going to try to hit him a few, a few absolutely times. yeah <laughs> you know because basically you know the Like the, the Gracie point in taking people to the ground is you limit their ability to hit you with power because power is generated from the legs. Right. So when you see a, a a kickboxing match that's happening in somebody's guard, Mm -hmm. pretty uninteresting because you've taken away most of the athletic potential in that situation. It's true. Yeah. So, um, to go back for a second, let's talk about, uh, actually i'm going to switch directions for a second one thing that i'm very interested in actually is well let me ask you this question when you when you if you think about why are you still in jiu-jitsu you've been doing martial arts forever at this point you've taken a lot of hits i'm sure how do your fair share of injuries like what keeps you coming back to it
1: good question uh yeah i love jiu-jitsu i i have a great deal of respect and admiration you might even say love for uh for striking and for clinch as well. But there's no doubt that I really love jiu-jitsu the most. And the thing that keeps bringing me back to jiu-jitsu is because I'm always learning more and more, not in the sense of um, volume of techniques, but in how deep <clears throat> the fundamentals of jiu-jitsu run. And we, you and I actually, I remember uh, the first time we met, the, the focus of our conversation back then was, was the importance of fundamentals. Yeah. And you were talking about how that applied to parkour. Mm -hmm. which was interesting. Um, But my my focus hasn't changed. I think that conversation was probably 20 years ago and I'm still just as fascinated by the fundamentals. And it's all I really teach. It's all I really focus on when I'm watching another coach teach. That's the part of what they're teaching that I'm fascinated by. And to this day, I'm nowhere near having that well run dry. I mean, just two weeks ago, We had Henry Akins, one of Hickson's black belts out here, who was doing a back control seminar um, and back escape seminar. And there were so many beautiful little details in there. Um, So so for me, that's invigorating and inspiring. It's intellectually stimulating. It's physically stimulating. I can, I'm about to be 51 and I can do it um, daily, you know, as long as I'm smart and um, I can, do it with my whole family. Everybody can do it. it it's sustainable. It's it's a intellectual exercise. It's a physical exercise. And there is just such incredible depth to the fundamentals of jujitsu once you really start to dig down there and, and um, start to figure out mechanically how that stuff works. I feel like after 30 years of focusing just on fundamentals, I'm still kind of at the, at the beginning of it.
0: Yeah. It's an endless problem. Yeah. It's kind of a, um,
1: with,
0: a, with games, like with play research, they talk about this idea that essentially what makes a game really good is when it has enough structure that there's a clear direction that you can always go, right? You know what your goal is, mm-hmm. but it's sufficiently complex that there's an endless permutation
1: of ways that you can play. Interesting. Yes. Well, that's so, a very good way to put it. That's very similar to jujitsu in that, in that sense. Yeah.
0: Jujitsu, I would say is a game, right? People play, yeah. play the role. So have you ever played connect four?
1: Sure. Yeah. Okay, so Where you drop four. the circles down. Yeah.
0: Connect four is a game that's very, um, it's very engaging for a while. Mm-hmm. Once you figure out the pattern, mm-hmm. you actually know that you can win. If you get the first, first thing every time, so long as you don't make a mistake. Right.
1: It's so tac it, connecto. Yeah.
0: It loses its interest over time because there's not sufficient permutations. Right. A game like uh, uh, chess or go, on the other hand, the 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 paths available within the game are combinatorial, explosive. Right. Mm-hmm. The number of ways that a, I think the number of ways that a uh, a a, uh, a chess game can play out is something like thirty to the or 64 to the 30 or 30 to the 64, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, 64 average moves 30 30 legal options per move, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: which is like around the same, you know, as like the number of electrons in the universe. Mm -hmm. You're never going to exhaust it. No. So there's something that's very deeply engaging about, about doing something like that. Mm What I've noticed about you know if you talk if you, you know if you ask anyone who's been in something for a very long time, why they do it, it it ends up being more about a sense of meaning or how it transforms them, how it fills basic needs for them over time, right? Um, and I think that there's a there's a place where we we can end up being blind to where we're actually. What we're actually trying to get out of it, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So we're, um, you know, you can you can just collect techniques in parkour, um, but if you're if you're not getting the transformation that you want, it's not necessarily meaningful for you. So there's a yeah. um, in the book uh, Breaking the Jump, which is a book about the origins of parkour. There's a scene where Williams Bell, who's kind of the, the youngest of the originators, he was six or seven years old when the whole group started doing this. When he's 11 years old he breaks this jump and it, it's it feels completely transformative to him it's like having done this was this major transformation for him so he brings his friend out to do the same jump and his friend jumps and lands and he he can see that to the friend it didn't do anything right whatever that whatever that jump meant for him it didn't mean it for the next guy and and so i've been thinking about this like okay you know at Thirty or so, I was trying to compete in parkour and do all these things, and my body was starting to break down. I was like, "Well, do I want to just max out as a competitive athlete and let my body break down, or do I want to do this for the rest of my life?" I chose the second way, and and so then I started thinking, "Well, what is it? What are we really after?" And one way that I've thought about this, and I'm really interested to bring your take in on this, is this idea of it's like Do versus Jitsu,
2: right?
0: Traditional martial arts. Jitsu means technique, and Do means way. Right? Mm-hmm. So I think what makes a, a practice sustainable, and that you want to keep coming back to, is in some sense that it gives you that dough, right? It gives you that path towards self-cultivation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, what uh, what strikes me is that a lot of times, the arts that the arts that proactively have recognized that most of the people are there for the dough,
2: mm-hmm.
0: they've removed. The stuff that most gives the opportunity for that. Yeah. But then on the flip side, the arts that have retained the stuff, they often don't don't have a pedagogy that helps derive the insight from the process. So it's like someone can come in and do jujitsu, and they can develop mindfulness, right? Mm-hmm. And they can develop a ton of insight into their character.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But they don't. But they won't necessarily get that. Right? I've met some really deeply developed human beings who are jujiteros or kickboxers or whomever who've been able to de- uh, develop the insight. Then I've also met some assholes. Right? And then on the flip side, you can meet these people who are so Zen and they've done all their meditation. And yet, um, in some sense, they're bullshitting themselves. Yes. So I'm curious how you think about that balance of the Do versus the jitsu and how we how we become better human beings through this practice? Because ultimately, it's like if you don't have the opponent processing, what's happening? But if you if you aren't aware of what you're trying to
1: get, are you moving towards that goal? Yes, that's a really good question. Um, I've given that a lot of thought, and <clears throat> it, it it is interesting that the moment people start to, certain people have started to figure out that that's what motivates so many people. They remove the actual mechanisms within the art uh, or practice that take them there. Yeah. And, and you can see that, that that's what happens with uh, traditional martial arts all the time. I'm actually afraid that that's going to happen to a degree with, with jiu-jitsu because you'll have, I'll run a hypothetical by you. You have somebody who truly has mastered the sport, uh, the art, the movement of jiu-jitsu, like Hickson, Gracie, who's the best example I could think of, of somebody like that, that would be mutually respected by just about everybody, um, who recognizes that as the sport has started, as the art has started to become gravitate more towards IBJJF rules, for example, and, and so many people have come to it and and immediately get funneled into this process of going to tournaments and playing for the point system that the fighting aspect of Jiu Jitsu, the thing that really motivated so many people to begin Jiu Jitsu in the the first place, which is really often a code word for self-confidence, better self-awareness, right? When people talk about wanting to learn self-defense very often, if you dig down that they're really talking about those, those types of things in addition to self-defense. But he sees that the art is going in this direction and he wants to avoid it going down the path and have the fighting part taken out. And so then he creates uh, uh, an alternative type of competition where people stand in front of a set of judges and demonstrate a series of self-defense techniques that are in a pattern and then then get judges put up a number based on how well they did that pattern. And if something like that were to happen, it's obviously backwards. It's going the wrong direction, but it's very hard sometimes to explain to people why, that without the aliveness part of it, without that aliveness aspect of it, all of the really deeper things that people talk about as it relates to some sort of self-actualization that can come from martial arts are lost. Uh, and you're basically left with with something that would I mean you could they're lost to to the degree that they would be there in in a fighting practice. they're there in a sense that you would have them there if you do yoga or if you do sure. some other art form like that. Um, but so many people have a hard time understanding that aspect of it. So how to counterbalance that? I think the first thing that that you have to do in a practical sense, is start talking to people about how you can train in a way that is for fighting, that maintains the fighting aspects of what we do, but doesn't involve people getting hurt. How you can train for a way that is for fighting and can also translate to IVJJF if you have students that want to to train in the tournament system, but you're not losing that fighting aspect of what we do. And at the same time, because you're training in a realistic alive way, you have the opportunity to use it as a vehicle for self-actualization. And I think in a practical sense, coaches who want to to achieve that have to have a mat where people can practice in a sustainable way. So somebody who's smart and 45 and has a family and doesn't want to get hurt and can't afford to go have knee surgery um, and isn't that interested in a competition but maybe is more interested in the self-actualization part of what we do, can practice in a a live functional way on the mat Mm -hmm. to the point where they can actually achieve some tangible skill that can't be faked any more than they, you could fake speaking Spanish or playing the guitar. They can achieve that and achieve the self-actualization aspect of it because you're training in a way that's intelligent and sustainable. And so you create a practice that's like that. Well, at the same time, you have to diligently monitor your culture. So when you get the people who are, Assholes, like you mentioned, and and this certainly happens, um, where somebody will mistake the fact that they meddle in jujitsu for the for being a better human being than other people, mm-hmm. and when that happens, you have to get those people off your mat and that's never a pleasant thing to do, um, and it shouldn't happen that very that often if you're if you have a culture that's good to begin with, because usually people like that will wind up weeding themselves out of the community long before it ever gets to that point. But you have to do both things. You have to have the art taught in a way that's sustainable for, uh, for adults and everybody who wants to train it that's still focused on fighting and a community of people who are essentially good human beings and and who and you maintain that community pretty tightly. And all that has to be monitored from, from the top down in terms of your culture. And then when you have that, I'm not even sure you need to even talk about self-actualization or or self-awareness or empathy or impulse control all the wonderful things that a combat sport can give you when it's trained correctly because it just actually becomes part of the environment it becomes part of the ethos and um, and people start to recognize it on their own without having a conversation about it which I think is more powerful anyway
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and the reason why I think that approach might be better is because There is a a trap and uh, danger when you start talking too much about the self-actualization aspects of martial arts, what other people might call the spiritual aspects of martial arts. Um, You're going to attract the wrong people for the wrong reasons. And then that, just like taking aliveness out and switching to a dead pattern, that that as well will kill the uh, the recipe, right? So it's, it, in, in a sense, it is like a recipe. You have to have the right ingredients, the fundamentals taught correctly. You have to have the right training environment, aliveness, which is the, how you cook that, and then the right community to then share that meal with. And if you do all that correctly, then I think what you're talking about is there. I've seen it there. I've seen it. I see it every day on my mat. <clears throat> I see kids come in that, you know, three years ago couldn't look people in the eye and have a conversation with them. And three years later changed human beings for the better, who are capable of being able to help other people and contribute to the community as a whole. So it's a long winded way. Maybe I did not answer yeah. question, but that's kind of my approach to it.
0: No, I think it is, it's a great insight into the way that you're thinking about your, the culture at your gym. This is, this is, you know, a real Core aspect of it have you run into John Verbeke's work? No yeah you might you might find him interesting he's a uh, he's a cognitive scientist from the University of Toronto and cognitive psychologist um, but uh he he's talking about this idea of an ecology of practices, a set of practices that reinforce each other so like within Parkour you know I've seen a lot of young men show up in particular who are awkward you know socially not super adapted, physically weak and small, you know, and then you see them like blossom. They get strong. They're physically, you know, beautiful all of a sudden, and they're very confident in their parkour scenario. But then you can see, I see these as these traps. Like I think that everything that works also has a dark side, right? Yes. So, you know, people think like meditation, for instance, is a panacea. And it's like, I've seen people who have, gotten some very bad things out of going too deep into meditation in a not balanced way. Right. Mm. People have completely turned their emotions off and think that, or think they've turned their emotions off, become completely blind to them. Yes. Um, You know, and so for me, the, the trap within parkour is people. So you can, I can do this jump and that teaches me something about overcoming fear. And it teaches me something about being a more courageous human. And, you know, then I can take that into my rest of my life or what can happen is, I can recognize that when I'm jumping and when I'm doing parkour, I feel confident, I feel strong and I feel happy. Mm-hmm. And then when I reach those places that that scare me, like maybe my relationship with my family or being able to talk to someone of the opposite sex, I just go back to doing what I'm comfortable with.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I see this as something that I see in all the arts that I see as actually working for self-development. There's often this this, this point at which it's like you can, you can extract the lesson or you can avoid
1: extracting the lesson. Yes, and it's left up to the individual.
0: Yeah, and so my, my curiosity is how do, we, how do we help people
1: bring the insights
0: from the practice to the rest of life?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and so we you know uh with with our group we we do meditative practices and we have we have a mixture of martial arts parkour and like nature connection practices so i'll go and 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 you know uh try to understand the birds and listen to the birds and stuff like that and that that finds a balance and I, i start to see patterns between these things
2: yeah
0: so um that, that's something that I've been playing with, this idea of an ecology of practices. And I, maybe I can make this more relevant to you and um, your work in a question, because one thing that I've thought about for years is within the martial arts, in order for it to work, it has to be competitive.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But every time that it becomes competitive, you have to limit the set of rules in a certain way. Mm-hmm. You, know, uh, you probably know Rory Miller, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Rory talks about safety flaws. Every combative sport has safety flaws.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But the safety flaws all teach you something that doesn't apply in, in a violent situation, right? Mm-hmm. So bobbing and weaving the way a, a good boxer does, or or you know, what Floyd Mayweather was doing in his fight with Connor, right? Mm-hmm. It worked great in that context. It wouldn't work so great if Connor could have kicked him. Mm-hmm. All
2: right.
0: Um so what we what I've been thinking about for years is how do I diversify the set of games that I play so that, you know. If I'm playing this game and it's giving me these good lessons and these potential negative lessons, this game I'm playing over here is filling that in. Right. And when, and what I see is like when people fall in love with a given art and especially the competitive aspect of the art, Mm -hmm. it can, it can become, uh, it can become a blinding. It's like, yeah, competitive Olympic taekwondo will teach me everything that I need to know about fighting. Right. Not so much. Right. I'm curious how you think about finding that balance and making sure that those, that the wrong lesson isn't what's coming out of, of the practice.
1: Sure. I actually think that's an easier question to answer than the previous one. Okay. Um, and the reason why is if you take something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, if it's taught well and you're focused on fundamentals and that really is a huge aspect of this, but if you focus on the fundamentals and it's taught well, it is so <laughs> effective that by the time people at least within within our school achieve uh, something like a blue belt which you know means something in the in our school and means something in brazilian jiu jitsu only to the degree that it reflects like i said an actual skill that you can't fake like being able to speak a language so it's just a a symbol of that real skill and by the time they achieve that particular real skill level which for most people i think takes between two and four years. Uh, Most of what they would ever need in terms of self-defense is already there. And the big flaw I think that happens, uh, the mistake that I think often gets made at other schools is they don't realize it's already there. They don't realize that they've already been training those skill sets because mentally um, they've always been thinking about it as a sport of jujitsu versus jujitsu as would be applied in, in in a tournament, as opposed to jiu-jitsu versus the world or jiu for self-defense. So one of the things, you know, we have a coach, uh, one of our black belts, Paul Sharp, who's a very good self-defense instructor, probably, you know, the best self-defense instructor I've, I've ever seen. But he has a lot of real-world experience. And one of the things he does is he reminds people that, look, if I was going to teach you just for fighting, if you were some sort of operator that had to go into a circumstance where, I have a few weeks to train you and we're only training for violent encounters with somebody else who's really trying to hurt you. One of the things you focus on is controlling the hands, right? So when it becomes physical, everything once it becomes physical is about managing distance, which is what we do in jujitsu and what we do in MMA. And then controlling the hands becomes very important so that the other person doesn't reach for a tool or your tool or their own tool. Um, That's there. It's incorporated in the hand fighting that we do. It's incorporated into the, the grip fighting that we do every day. By the time someone has achieved the level of blue belt, they're probably pretty good, uh, especially compared to just the average human being who's walking around an average violent predator who's not a trained fighter at hand fighting. They just may not have recognized it within the context of that particular environment. And so he can take people in a course of you know an hour, show them with, how it applies in that particular environment and, and they pick it up like this, right? And, and you could take someone else who's been, and this is the problem with, I think with, with some of the a thesis like Roy Miller's that you mentioned before, you take somebody who's training only for fighting and you put them, they, let's say they've trained that way for 10 years and you put them in that same environment or you give me a blue belt, one of my blue belts and you let let Paul work with them for an hour on how to use their already, innate skill of hand fighting in the context of of that environment. And I I will almost guarantee you that the person that's a blue belt is just going to wipe the floor with this other person because within them, they have the, the fundamentals. They just need the context of how do you apply the fundamentals in that environment. And I agree completely with you. It's very important to, to, uh, to practice that context on, on a frequent basis. And even in the gym, when they come to our foundation classes at SBG. so, everybody when they first sign up goes to a 16 lesson course before we let them take the other classes. We remind them and we, we talk, talk to them in every single class about this is how it would apply in a fight. Mm-hmm. And just having that conversation, it doesn't, because we're training fundamentals, it doesn't really change the physical movement. I mean, there's no special mount escape for when you're in a parking lot mm-hmm. and there's no special hand fighting drill when the person has a knife. But so it doesn't train the physical nature of what we do. It doesn't train the timing or the most important aspect that they're getting from the aliveness. It doesn't train, change the fundamental. It just puts in their mind, Oh, this is how I would apply it in that situation. Yeah. And so as they're growing, they know they have that skill. Cause what I don't want to have happen is I don't want to have somebody who's a legit purple belt or blue belt, then think, Oh, I need to go take krab MAGA because I'm missing some aspect of that fighting. It's like, no, you have that aspect of that fighting. You just haven't been shown how to use it there yet.
0: Yeah. I mean, the way that I've thought about it is, you know, I use this term delivery systems, which I like. Yeah. All the reality-based self-defense in the world that I've seen won't, won't give you the robust delivery systems. Exactly. Um, But I also see that there's lots of jujitsu that I go to, where there's no, there's no addressing of, of these other contexts. right? And you know, like, you know, so my, my jiu-jitsu journey is funny. I, I trained for a year and a half when I was 15, 16. Um, then 23 to 24, I trained under Cody. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I've done like six months with um, in here in town and then another maybe six months with the gym here in town. But then I've trained a lot, I've rolled, s- significant amount with students of mine through the years
1: mm-hmm. and you're in Seattle right?
0: I'm in Seattle yeah so when I go into the average jiu-jitsu gym that I've gone to like I can roll with with purple belts mm-hmm. and frequently brown belts for the same weight class as me and I can I can physically dominate right I mean the, atle- the athleticism that I developed through, through parkour is a huge component of that um, but also there's things that that I just don't know that I need, that I would need to know. Right. So like I, I went and competed in my first jiu-jitsu tournament. Um, and I like, I have a very heavy top game. I'm very strong in the top game. I can pass guard really easily and then I can get submissions. But, um, but I didn't have any takedowns cause almost every class that I ever took didn't address takedowns.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> it was like in order to apply the game that I have on the ground, I needed this, this piece that was not addressed.
2: Yeah. And then that I, common, yeah.
0: I didn't see a Dresden, um, and so I see Jiu Jitsu as like, you know, it's it's much better than most of what's out there, but they're still missing pieces for me a lot of the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, yeah, and
2: I I, 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 I really
0: need be. to come down and train with you guys and see what you're doing because I'm, I'm very curious to see what it's looking like, and I think that yeah.
1: there's a lot for me to learn. One thing I would say is um, when you go to a school like that, <clears throat> I would guess as well that very often they're not focused on fundamentals. So, you know, the typical, if I'm going to paint again, painting with a broad brush, but a very typical training method in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, not in SBG, but Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as a whole is a, here's the instructor comes out and he shows some series of techniques. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a literally a, 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 six step process right hand goes here they go here you go they do that and now we do this they do that and now we do this and everybody looks and they're like oh wow it's cool and then he goes okay try it and then you try the six steps with your partner maybe you get it maybe you don't that goes on for 30 minutes and then everybody rolls and tries to kill each other <laughs> which is this is a such a common training method in jujitsu, and it's, it's the worst possible way you can learn jujitsu. i've seen um world champions who i really like as human beings i'm not going to name names but like just great people who are some of the were some of the best competitors in the world at, mm. at the time and that's how they teach and they're teaching their, they're teaching their own game exactly what they do and so if they're left-handed they're teaching it with the left hand right left hand caller here <laughs> right hand here and and uh, and the students just repeat it kind of and then they roll and yeah. that's and, and for them drilling would be the warm-ups they do in the beginning where they, they do rolls on the mat and practice some shrimps and stuff.
2: Yeah. So that's
1: so opposite of, you know, the SBG epistemology and what we do. Um, that it's, it's really difficult to compare. So they're training the same delivery system, but the training method is, is so poor that yes, in that kind of environment, if they didn't take the very specific class that the instructor had on self defense, they very, they very well might wind up um, missing a whole chunk of what really should be there if they were training correctly.
0: Yeah, so this, is, this was a really interesting thing for me. So, you know, as I said in the beginning, I encountered your work many years ago. I took the idea of aliveness. I got really excited about it, but I didn't study it as deeply as I could have. So one thing that you talk about in your method is this idea of the I method. Mm-hmm. Introduce, uh, isolate, and then integrate. Correct. Right. Um so over the years I've also encountered Ido Portal's work and he's talked about a similar I method, right? Mm-hmm. Isolate, integrate, improvise. Um, and I had a fundamental mistake in the way that I understood what you were talking about with isolation, right? Because I thought that it was that stage where you just repeat the the movement wow. over and over again, right? Yeah. Because this is what drives me crazy about about going to a jiu-jitsu class, mm-hmm. is here's a complex you know, omoplata set up to choke with your shin that you've never done before. Right. Let's let's drill that for five minutes and then move to the next progression of the same technique and then the next progression of the the same technique.
1: And by drill, they just mean repeat it.
0: Yes, just repeat it with zero resistance. Repeat with zero resistance. Mm -hmm. You know, it's partner kata, basically. It is. It's partner kata where you get five minutes to absorb the kata before you move on to the next variation of the kata. Yeah. And then at the end of that, you roll and you just do your normal roll. So the likelihood that that specific situation occurs is extremely low. Right. Um, so I was listening to you, uh, listening to your podcast and you're talking about what you do is, the, what you when you say isolation, what you mean is essentially introducing a game or a way of scaling resistance that allows you to specifically address whatever technique you've introduced.
1: Yes. When we talk about isolation in SPG, if, if it's not alive, it's not isolation. And if it's not alive, if there's no aliveness, for us, it's not a drill for us that if there's no aliveness, you're not drilling You're you're, you're just still at the introduction stage of just basically learning how to do the movement mechanically, but there's no timing. So there's no drill.
0: Yeah. So this is, I mean, to, to go back to the, the team sport analogy, right? Constraint led approach to team sports, right? So I can introduce change of direction with cone drills, Mm -hmm. But I'm not, I'm getting no aliveness and no transfer to the field of play until I force you into a a player versus player situation. Mm -hmm. And then we can manipulate the rules. We can set up the cones. We can have flags. We can have one player, two player, whatever. And then that gives you, that gives you, Functional real adaptions because you have to deal with another person's energy timing and rhythm. Yes um, So that's that's <laughs> this is what drives me crazy when I go to jiu-jitsu classes <laughs> because I want that I want I like I'm like If, if, if we're gonna work on you know switching from a Plata to choking someone with my shin across their neck uh, You better have a game you better have a way to let me play that with resistance, right? by the end of the day right um so that's what i think where there's such a there's this very interesting thing between that that constraints led approach and how it reflects aliveness and i'm I'm really interested also in the fact that you you got this method or you started developing these ideas around um the i method um from from hickson as well so it's like even though uh like even though most jiu-jitsu that I've experienced is not taught this way.
1: I, to be honest with you, I haven't seen it outside of SBG. Um, And the only other two people I've seen that do something similar is is of course, Hickson and um, Hodger. Okay.
0: Who's arguably the greatest Jiu-Jitsu
1: of the modern era. Right. And he doesn't call it, um, he doesn't use the same terminology. and, And basically he just calls it positional sparring, which is exactly what Hickson calls it. Yeah, um, and I don't know if he applies it outside of positional sparring. I don't know if he if, if he uses it for everything like sweeps and everything else he teaches, which is what we do. But but yes, it's it's super uncommon, and it's just if you were to ask me to pick one thing that is the most important thing that we do in training, that is the most important thing. It's the most important thing we do in SBG. It's the most important thing I think we do in class. It's the most important time I think a student has during the class is that drilling stage yeah. and it's almost non-existent outside of in jiu-jitsu anyway.
0: Yeah. I, so the jiu-jitsu school that I'm going to right now, um, is in the uh, John Donaher lineage. They're, they're connected to the John Donaher schools. They do specifics. That's what they call the same thing where you do, you get into a position and you, you basically do live drilling of it. Right. Um, I, I really like them. They're very smart guys. Uh, there's a real variation in in the quality and how well each of the teachers know it. So, like the top teacher that uh, is amazing at doing this, and then other folks are, you know, spending ten minutes in a row giving technical instructions of a drill and then right. you know repeating it to, to, to eight year old children who <laughs> can't can't keep their attention that long. But uh, but I, but that is the out there. But it, it it feels like it's so. It's so poorly understood right now. Yeah, like aliveness, and and I think that um, that this this idea of understanding that it's that it's that it's ubiquitous. It's not just in martial arts, but once you understand constraints, this is what we need to do in all of
1: these areas. I think so. Yes.
0: Um, sure. So uh, one 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 lens that I look at this on is this is basically from play research, right? So you can think of each of these as basically mini games, right? Okay And how do, I, how do I basically build a set of mini games mm-hmm. that allow me to address whatever I'm trying to adapt?? Right? Yes. How, this, this little piece, it's like Sao is a mini game, right? Mm-hmm. Is it played in a way that has real aliveness that develops real hand fighting skills? Correct? Is there yes. a way to address that so that it, that it actually becomes that versus you know right. I do X, Y, and Z, you do the opposite, right? right. So this is what I'm interested in is how do we build those games? So what are, so can you tell me a little bit about kind of what are some of the core games that you guys have found teach the fundamentals the
1: best? Sure. So we put all all the instructors that teach at our Academy go through instructor training Mm -hmm. and we have different levels of instructor training. So the first level of instructor training that they go through Mm -hmm. and it varies a little bit from Academy to Academy, the curriculum is the same, but, um, you know they may take it over four weekends or they may take it over 10 weeks depending on how you know how the class is broken down but that particular class is focused primarily on presentation and how you run a good class uh not talking too long not making a lot of the mistakes you just articulated a few minutes ago that are, that are very common especially for new instructors just because they get excited with the material or they have no idea how to actually teach so they'll go through that and then they shadow one of the other instructors who's on the mat uh, for 100, 200 classes. And then they'll take a second course. And the second course is a course where we teach people how to create drills. And my um, my ideal for an SBG coach has been very similar for the last 20 years is uh, a, a true SBG coach is somebody that should be able to look at anything. Um, in, in our case, let's talk about fighting, any aspect of fighting, And any particular skill you want it to work that day, whether it's a kick or a movement or a concept or a sweep or a take that, whatever, and instantly come up with an alive drill. That's going to be functional and safe and apply directly, be able to integrate directly into fighting, into the game that we're, we're training for. And it's very important to me that every SBG coach can do that. And certainly all of the top SBG coaches can do that because that's, really one of the most important things that we do. When you have those various drills, those alive games, I've only ever come up with with five basic structures that they fall into and every every drill is gonna be either one of them or, or more often than not a combination of them. I haven't come up with a sixth, but that doesn't mean it's not there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So to give you an example, uh, I'll use jujitsu for simplicity. If I say one side pass the open guard and one side try not to let him pass, that's an objective drill. So they have an objective that they're working on and that's what they're trying to achieve. If I say one side pass guard, other side try not to let him pass, going, only going underneath the, the legs, um, that is an isolation drill. So we're isolating a particular movement, a particular technique, a particular aspect piece of the bigger puzzle. If I say uh, hang out in this space here, where the person can sweep you in their open guard where they can sweep you and you haven't controlled the hips completely enough. You haven't haven't crushed them yet and maintain base and just stay there and clear grips and and don't get swept while the other person tries to sweep you. That's a pocket drill. So there we're isolating a particular distance or range. Mm -hmm. If I say, um, I want you to enter and get an knee over and then stop and reset. That's a reset drill where we're isolating a particular moment in time that occurs. Um, and then if I have, let's say two different types of, or three different types of passes going underneath the legs or going over the legs or going around the legs. And the whole room is, is practicing passing the open guard and the coach yells out under And then everybody tries to go under and then then all of a sudden they'll yell out around. And then no matter where you're at in the process of that pass, you immediately have to switch pressures and try and go around. That is a call-out drill. And call-out drills are basically isolating transitions between two movements. And so every drill that I've ever seen falls into one of those categories or two or three of those categories at the same time. Um, I've not been able to come up with a sixth. Um, and so what I do is I focus on what those drills are, how you, how you make them work, how you play them. I give them some examples and then I'll have the coaches, the students that are training in the coaching class come up with drills on their own. So all of a sudden I'll give them, say, okay, we're going to work, um, um, paper cutter choke, or we're going to work a uh, body lock takedown, or we're going to work a sprawl. Or we're going to work, you, know, you name it. I'll just yell something out to them. And then, then and there, they need to come up with a, a functional alive drill uh, that can be taught in a safe and, a, and healthy way for the room. Mm-hmm. And, and it's relatively, it's not that difficult. I mean, it's something anybody can do. They have to have, I think, you know, some real skill in the delivery system to be able to do it correctly. But if they have some real skill in the delivery system, they're a purple belt or, you know, somewhere in there. Once they get a hang of it, it becomes pretty easy. So that's how we do it. Take my hoodie off real quick.
0: Yeah, no worries. Uh, I'm going to go back and uh, re-listen to that part of the interview for sure. And uh,
1: I have that. um, I think if you I can look right now real quick. Um, If you were to go to mattthornton.org, I believe I put that. I'll well, we'll link it in the show notes if you've got it you can send it to me and we'll link it okay, yeah so on pretty. my blog there's some essays to talk about that and list the five drills yeah i've been trying
0: you know i have a you know a whole set of games that we play we call rough housing right so the idea with what we're doing is basically rough and tumble play is, is a really necessary physical nutrient for human beings it teaches a lot of things um, one of the things it teaches is self-defense we we approach that but i recognize myself as not such an expert in that area that, that, that that's our central focus or it would be appropriate for uh, uh, that to be our central focus. Um, but the basic thing that we're looking at is what are the the constraints or affordances and how do we shape them so that we can, as you say, create a sustainable environment. And a big thing that I think about in relationship to this is, um, I feel like a lot of the martial arts, they're basically, they're the client that they expect is a kid from the 1920s or something, right? Like somebody who grew up on the streets, playing stickball, getting in fights, doing all this stuff. And they don't really recognize how how emotionally inhibited people are, how touch-phobic they are, Mm -hmm. how completely overwhelmed they are. And they don't do enough to build rapport, trust, and safety for their athletes before they ask them to do these more difficult things. So I think tons of people get burned out by jujitsu, by kickboxing, by wrestling, by everything else, because they, um, uh, they go in and they get asked to roll the first time and they get a 230 pound man uh, throwing them into a really hard guillotine. <laughs> you know,
1: it's a hundred percent true. That's why I mentioned to you before we have the uh, foundations program and we make everyone go through that first yeah. because we don't want to weed those people out. We want to build them up. Those are actually the students that I'm the most excited that I get the most personal satisfaction out of teaching. Right? Cause yeah. you can see them really progress and blossom after a while. So
0: I, I'm going to just share this with you to, you know, take it for what it's worth or tell me what you think about it. But, uh, what we do is actually we've taken elements from contact improv and we take people and have them learn to just learn to move with sensitivity to another person to oh, develop yeah. rapport and trust. And okay. then when we introduce competition, we introduce competition. Basically we think about the things that, that impact the safety. So we want people to have enough, they need to be able to struggle and work hard. Um, But also they need to feel successful. Um, And they need to have a sense of scaling, right? And then to support an environment. So what we do is we look at what are the variables that that do that? So, you know, what tools do you have available? So obviously if you can hit people with your fists, it's a much more threatening situation than when you can. Right. what are the targets, right? So if I'm just hitting you to the body, it's less threatening than if I'm allowed to hit to the, uh, hit to the head, right? Um, and then what kind of m- motion is allowed? How do I restrict your motion? Because you know, football can be more dangerous than boxing even because you know I can hit you pretty hard if I'm standing in front of you and I'm throwing my hands, but not as hard as if I spear you with my head from a 20 foot run up. So like the first game that we play is we put people on a line And we have them try to pull each other off the line just by going hand to hand. So they have one tool, one target, and then by, and then they can't really move forward or backwards. Um, so they can't develop momentum. Um, and also the cool thing about that is we found that when you limit the balance, you, you, uh, you remove some of the advantage of being a larger athlete because a larger athlete has a larger moment of sway. So you create more, more, um, more chance of success for smaller athletes Mm -hmm. and what we found is interesting is so many people who come to work with us will say that they're afraid of martial arts they're afraid to get physical with people they've been in class or they've been to a class and they've been intimidated but or they don't like competition they don't feel competitive Mm -hmm. but if you give people this game and you let them it's they can play it hundred percent alive as hard as possible Mm -hmm. and they freaking love it right Mm -hmm. because they're safe yeah but i see that frequently not being addressed in martial arts classes how do i get people competing as early as possible and having fun and recognizing how fun it can be in a way that's going to make sure that it's sufficiently um, safe and also gives athletes a regular chance of success because if athletes get tapped you know right over again you burn so that's kind of that's that's the way we've approached that
1: i think that's great that's uh that's sounds really really good I mean if you think about it that's exactly how we one of the things that I think is missing uh, in adult classes a lot of times is games like that you know we all we all do that and take advantage of that um, in the kids program you know most kids programs have tons of games that we can that we can use to help the kids achieve all the things you just mentioned but uh, we we don't do that enough I don't think for adult classes I like that idea and and that's exactly the point right we want to get them feeling comfortable understanding that they're in a safe environment um, and getting used to human contact just physical contact and touch you know for for some people can be very intimidating and uh, and I don't want them I don't want to weed those people out so anything like that I think is fantastic
0: that's awesome Cool. Glad it meets with your approval. Um, appreciate that.
1: Yeah, I'm actually, I'm probably steal something like that, you know, <laughs> use that. For sure.
0: Yeah, I'll come down and we'll, we'll exchange some, uh, some ideas. That'd be wonderful.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, I wanted to talk to kind of switch to the other end of this, uh, which is the, if you're going to teach people to fight, eventually they have to fight, right? Or the, or how much do they have to fight in order to be useful? Right. Mm-hmm. So I know like in Muay Thai, in the Thai version of Muay Thai, they do almost no hard sparring but they start fighting at an extremely young age. Right. Whereas in the Dutch version, the sparring gets really, really hard because you don't compete as often and you don't start as young. Right. And I've been thinking about this with my own students and myself. It's like, um, I feel like there's a point in someone's journey where they need to experience a really high contact very close to full contact, very high intensity sparring. Um, but you have to, like, how do you set up the safety parameters and how do you recognize when you've done enough and how you pull back and go to the, the athlete has has what they need in their head to to know. They have the, the courage that they've, that they've been through the firefight. Mm-hmm. Now, any more would just be risking injury with minimal gain.
1: Right. How do you know where that line is? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think that's a very individual thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And more often than not, I think people go too far or um, onto the contact end of that spectrum. So people train too hard, too often, or too long. Mm -hmm. And we can do that. The beautiful thing about Brazilian Jiu Jitsu one of, the, one of the many beautiful things about it is the fact that you can train 100% full on, which is basically what happens when you go to a tournament with somebody who's trying to break your arms and choke you unconscious um, and not get brain damage. It's true. At all. So it's very easy to expose people to that. And, and having said that training that hard in jujitsu even just jujitsu, I think too often is counterproductive Mm. Uh, and, and people don't need to roll that hard. They don't need to roll as hard as they think they do. This was a mistake I personally made in my own jujitsu and my own teaching for years. I trained rolled too hard and I have my students roll too hard with each other. And some of my older black belts, my senior black belts, my first black belts, um, I think have the same problem. And I, take responsibility for that because they came up in my classes and we all rolled too hard and it took me a while to figure out to get it through my fixed goal how to do that correctly not just for my own game but more importantly for my students so it's it's much more mellow now and having said that what that means in actual um, application is that my students are better than they've ever been they're they're technically better they're going to compete better they're better all the way around. And so one of the things I try and to do, I think one of my jobs is to convince people that you can get very, very good in jiu-jitsu. You can even get better than you would otherwise without having to train that hard that often. So with jujitsu, I think it's a very solvable problem. And it's more um, just convincing them of that. Mm-hmm. And then occasionally, you know, you want to feel what it feels like when somebody's just hanging on super tight so that, when you, If you do decide to go compete in a tournament, that's not the first time you've ever felt that kind of pressure. Yeah. But once you get used to that kind of pressure and you understand what it feels like, nope, you don't want to train that way in the gym. Mm-hmm. With striking, it's, it's different. And it's just different because of brain damage. Yeah, And even one super hard sparring session where somebody gets knocked out or almost knocked out, is doing brain damage. So I think we, we have to take it very seriously as coaches and we have to err on the side of safety. So I don't make anybody spar like that with striking ever. If they're going to compete in MMA, obviously they have to experience that, but we don't put them through some sort of test. We don't we don't hit them, you know, we don't have them spar that hard. What happens more often than not, is the, the head coach for my MMA team, who's awesome, is Ricky Davidson, one of my first black belts. And I know what Rick and Coach Brian Walsh, who's the other, one of the other great coaches that, that teaches our team, I think more often than not, they wind up having to calm the fighters down to get them to slow down, to get them to relax, because they're the ones that, yeah. that up the energy and start to go hard. With the average human being, so somebody that's just coming to my gym, has no intention of fighting in a cage. I don't know that I ever need to have them do that. I think just teaching good fundamental Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, focused on, um, on fundamentals and taught them in a live way in the old school sense of the word where we're incorporating takedowns and we're incorporating strikes is enough. And they can, they can slap the, the, the head and punch the body lightly when they're rolling on the ground. And they can get a really good feeling for when they're going to be in danger, when they're not going to be in danger, what, what winds up exposing their head to strikes and what doesn't, and develop a really strong and functional self-defense game without ever having to glove up and just start exchanging blows with somebody else as hard as they can. And the last thing I would say about that is the test that I, that I run in my own mind for my students with this kind of thing is so I have five kids. I say, um, am I going to do this with my kids? Would I have my son, Liam, who's one of my blue belts, would I have him do this? And if, it, if I say to myself in my mind and in my heart, there's no way I would have Liam do this because it's I don't think it's worth the potential brain damage for him just to experience what it's like to be in a fight like that, then I'm not going to do it with my students. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so
0: a couple kind of like sort of contrary points on this, um, sure. that, uh, that I'm just curious to, 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 to express to you. one is to the idea that the students are getting better when you spar lighter. Yes. I, uh, I remember for some reason what pops in my head is I remember years ago I posted some footage of myself deadlifting um and before I deadlifted I was going <laughs> you know like super energized and I had Glenn Pendley who is one of the like Olympic weightlifting coaches I believe for the national team just happened to be on that forum he dropped me a comment and just said stop <laughs> you're going to you're going to progress much much faster if you don't do that um
1: don't get yourself all revved up.
0: Yeah, and and, and so the idea was, and you know, I run into this in a number of places. But basically, when your when your when your nervous system goes to that level of fight or flight, right, it's extremely costly, and mm-hmm. the recovery cycle is going to be much longer. Which means that you get fewer good reps in, which means that ultimately you get less strong over time. Right. Um. So that's so that I think that that's, that's probably, you know, one of the things that's happening that's making that work, right. is like how many, how many good quality reps, how well can I think what, one of the things we think about is like, what is that zone of optimal engagement and learning, right? Like, can I get my students into that flow state more often? And if yeah. they're getting injured and if they're getting pressured and if it's, it's too much all the time and they're anxious constantly when they're sparring, they're not learning optimally. Yeah. Now the other thing though, that I think about is like, as someone who's, you know, I spent nine years not training in a formal jiu-jitsu school, and then I went back to jujitsu, mm-hmm. and uh, and then all of a sudden it's like after, I don't know. Well, at first I was just smashing people, uh, right, because I had this huge athletic advantage, and people didn't realize what what I was doing, you know, or didn't they didn't they saw me as, you know, a white belt coming in and, and it was like, well, actually I can pass your guard really well. And then, you know, I have a lot of pressure and I can just fake this collar choke that I don't even have and you'll give me something. But then people get wise to your game. And it's like, they, they know how to shut that down. Right. But then like three months in, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm rolling with brown, you know, some of the brown belts that I'm rolling with, who are my weight class when tapping. Um, and, but also, like in, when I first did jiu-jitsu, I was constantly running into this problem of because I'm 2'15 and a good athlete, it's, there's not many – a lot of times I can just control the game and end up always in the situation that I want.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I was being told by my coaches, like, you have, to, you have to back off. You have to allow things to happen. You have to be lighter, right? So now I go in and I'm always trying to match levels and I'm always trying to, like, make sure I'm not abusing my strength but then I'm not actually sure, right? The fitness function feels like it's being pulled out a little bit because it's like, what would happen if I was going hard and he was going hard? I don't know. Right. right? Like, does that make sense? It's like, it's harder to read sure. what's really going or you're, to some degree, maybe you're, you're reducing that operant conditioning and how, so you obviously are having success if the students are performing better. How do you right. control that?
1: Good. So a um, couple things. One of things. One of the things I say often uh, to students and coaches when I'm teaching seminars, just to make sure I'm expressing myself clearly, because I've seen in years past, I, I've, I've been talking about non-attribute based training for, for a long time. And in years past, I've seen people have misconstrued or misunderstood what I said, which is my fault. So to make myself as clear as possible, what I, what I tell all the students is I want you to have as much strength and conditioning as humanly possible. If you can make yourself a superhuman strength and conditioning machine, do it. Go for it. I mean, I want you to be healthy and strong and fast and all that stuff. And I want you to use as little po- as possible in the gym. And that it's, it's really that simple. And the reason why is because in the gym, what I want you to develop is jujitsu technique. And if you find yourself getting caught, for example, in a bad position and you're about to get submitted rather than use strength and explosiveness to escape from that choke or position, which you may be able to do, I'd prefer that you feel it go on um, and tap and find, then treat it as a, as a puzzle and find a technical solution to that puzzle, and then isolate that technical solution with aliveness, drill it, and then go back and find that same person who caught you and solve that problem with technique. And then your learning curve goes like this. I don't want you to to repeat the same mistakes, but I always want you to find those mistakes, those holes in your game, and not patch up those holes with strength or conditioning but uh, another way I would phrase it is I want them to fail better. I want you to fail often and fail good. And you fail good by recognizing where you failed and then finding a solution to where you failed. But that solution, I do not want that solution to be a strength or conditioning solution. I want that solution to be a jujitsu technique solution. And the net result of that ultimately what we're trying to accomplish is we're trying to accomplish, create an athlete who has phenomenal jujitsu technique and great strength and conditioning because if you go into a tournament and you're competing with somebody from a different school or you get into a, a, a unfortunate self-defense circumstance where you have to use the art to defend yourself, I want you to have all the strength and conditioning in the world and all the technique in the world and I want you to use all of it on this unfortunate human being that you're in this encounter with, but not in the gym. And, um, if strength and conditioning made your jiu better, I would be able to go to the Oakland Raiders and throw um, geese on their offensive line and have a medal in purple belt. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to medal in purple belt. They may – we can get one of these guys who's 270, 280, with single-digit body fat that can run a sprint 50 yards faster than a small, light person that's just a human yeah. drug-induced machine. And they may, with a little bit of technique, may, maybe – be able to medal at blue belt um, in a competitive area like LA, but they'll never medal at the higher belts because they don't have that technique. And to me, that's what makes jujitsu so fascinating and so interesting and so beautiful. Um, And that's what I, when I told you earlier that it took me a long time to figure that out. I mean, I always said it. I always talked about non-attribute based training, but honestly, when I would roll in the gym, I like to win just as much as anybody else does. I like the students to win, and so we would roll hard, and if there was a way for me to fight out of it, you know, I would fight out of it, and is there a place for that occasionally? Yeah, I mean, but it's not very often, and it's not very necessary, and and the moment you cross that line, it, it becomes very counterproductive, very counterproductive, and learning to use just jujitsu when you're rolling competitively in the gym is one of the one of the most important and one of the hardest to learn skills of, of jujitsu. One, one last story i tell you is when we give out black belts, when I give out black belts in or any belt in SPG, we Iron Ironman, right? So we have the room line up and then they have to wrestle with, they wrestle with every single person in the room. And if it's a black belt, we used to give them out at the camps and so they would have a 100, 150 people in the room that they'd roll with. Yeah. And um, one of my black belts named John Diggins has always kind of trained the way I'm talking about now. He's, he's a, he's an athlete, he's strong. And I think he's about I don't know, John's probably 210 somewhere in there hovers between 190 and 210. And um, he was a young athletic guy, but very often I would watch him roll in the gym and he'd, he'd roll with somebody. And I liked John a lot just as a person. He'd be rolling with maybe a, another student who was a little bit, had a big ego and maybe wasn't the best guy, you know. And and that guy would catch him in a position and John would relax and tap. And occasionally as a coach, it would frustrate me. I'm like, oh, why did you let that guy get you, John? In my mind, I'm thinking, why did you let him get you, right? Why didn't you just beat him? Because I know you can. i never... I never said it to him, because somewhere, I understood that he was doing something correctly, and I knew it. But it was just my own personal ego for John wanting him to win. But he would always roll very relaxed. Ever since he was like a blue belt, and then, it's probably six or seven years ago, I gave him his black belt. We were in Niagara Falls. There was about a hundred people at the camp. Uh, he'd stayed up the night before drinking. Um, and he had a bruised or rib. Uh, I know he hadn't gone to sleep till probably 4 in the morning because we never tell people that they're going to Man. It's just springing on them, right? So at the end of the camp, eight hours of training that day, I call him out in front of the seminar, and he rolls with every single person in the gym. And like I said, there was well over 70 people there. And he did not tap. It took a long time. I think it probably took two, two to three hours. But he did not tap until he got to, started to get to the, well, actually got to the black belts. The black belts always go last. So we roll by belt level, white, blue purple down, black. And it was one of the most impressive Ironmans I'd ever seen. At that point, I think it was the single most impressive Ironman I'd ever seen. Um, and it, that is when it finally clicked. Um, that's why it was so important. John did that all these years. The net result of that was when he was put on the spot in a situation like that, which is incredibly physically taxing, he can roll with 70 to 75 people who are really trying to beat him and doesn't tap until he gets to the 66th person who's a black belt. And he, he can get up, he can walk downstairs, he can have a conversation. He wasn't dying, he wasn't exhausted. and. And that's what you wind up with if you train smart and don't use those kind of attributes in the gym. Tap
0: today, so you don't have to tap tomorrow.
1: Yeah, find a technical solution to the problem.
0: It's interesting. I mean, i I would say in my own rolling, I don't tap. I often have not tapped very often because I've just been able to. force the situation to somewhere where i can i can dominate because of physical attributes um and i don't like tapping (laughs) it's it's very it's very it's very grueling to my ego i understand (laughs) but uh but it's a good message you know it's like uh but i think i think the idea of the fitness function and the the it's like actually if you're if you're not tapping in some sense you're not necessarily putting yourself you're not you're not giving yourself clear enough information. Yes,
1: yes. So we've always away. called it um, progressive resistance, is the way I used to phrase it, and then one of our coaches, Roy Singer, used a different term, adaptive resistance, and I, and, and which is the term I use now, but it's a much better term for what we're talking about. So as I said, I want people to fail, and I want them to fail well, um, and you you have to dial the resistance levels sometimes up. And sometimes down um, because you don't want to be get if you're tapping every single time obviously we need to dial it down a little bit but you have to find that sweet spot wherever it is between you and your training partner and when you have a training partner where you can do that you can find that sweet spot of adaptive resistance you can get really good very quickly um, by focusing on areas where you do normally tap areas where you're weak and solving those equations
0: yeah, like that's um, uh, that that's what I'm interested in a lot with the roughhousing from a martial artist perspective mm-hmm. is the idea of like how do I train people to be better at playing? Yeah, so they can so that they can spend more time in the optimal learning zone and identify and get into the game that's going to give them the the tool or the capacity that we're looking for. Yeah so're we're, we're, we've been talking for quite a while. Uh, thank you so much for your time. If I can uh, ask you just one more question it's uh, I want you to to talk about fundamentals right I think that this is something that just reading through your stuff before I was thinking about one one message that people could take away from this is how do i how do I play games more right But in order to play the right games in some sense, you have to be able to identify what are the fundamentals in whatever area you are and you know, people who are listening to this are not just Jujiteros, they're, you know, they're mostly movement people, right? right. So if we are solving any problem in movement, right? As a movement artist, a surfer, a Jujitero, a parkour athlete, setting up the game so it's constraint-led or it's alive. That's one aspect of it. But how do we identify what are the fundamentals in our area so that we can pick the games and, and, and make them appropriately constrained so that they give us those fundamentals we're looking for.
1: Good, that's a good question. So one of the things that I say is that as I define fundamentals not as what's most basic, but what's most important. And that's a that's a a, a very important message I'm trying to get across to people because it's often misconstrued as what's most basic. And and sometimes it is what's most basic, but really what it means is what's most important. So then the question becomes, well, how do I know what's most important? And there's various ways, depending on the delivery system, to figure it out. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is we're trying to find those pieces of the delivery system, you know, movements, essentially, what we're talking about, some kind of human movements,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which you could not take out. Right? So I'll use jujitsu as, as, uh, as my example, but every jujitsu black belt, SBG or otherwise, has their game that they play. They have their takedowns that they like, their sweeps that they like, the type of guard they like to do. And one of the big mistakes I think instructors make is they teach their game. They teach what they're good at. Um, Because no two black belts really are the same. You're going to have Marcelo Garcia, and you're going to have – Higgins Machado and you're going to have Hodger Gracie and you're going to have Chris Howder and they all have completely different, um, games, but what allows them to play the game at that level or at a higher level is that underlying their personal style is, uh, the fundamental human movement of that, of that delivery system. And that they all share and that they all do in more or less the same way. And, By definition, it's something that they all do efficiently and well because they're good at the sport or they're good at that delivery system. And that's the stuff that I want to teach. So I'm not interested in teaching their version of sweeps or their version of techniques. I'm interested in teaching the things that Hadra Gracie and Marcelo Garcia have in common. Those are the things that everybody needs to know. Uh, they're the things that everybody's going to do more or less the same way, whether they're a 110 pound woman or a 260 pound football player. And that is what I call the fundamentals of the delivery system. Um, and so you can ask yourself um, what can I not take away and still be able to play the game? There's lots of things you can take away. You could be a fantastic jujitsu player and have no idea how to play X card.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You could be a fantastic jujitsu jitsu player and have no idea how to uh, play uh, back control with a uh, leg triangle. Sure. So there's all kinds of there's, – there's far more things that you can take away from jiu-jitsu than there are that you must leave. And on the list of things that you must leave are a series of human movements, um, and there's only so many of those. Uh, they, and and they flow throughout those fundamentals flow throughout the delivery system they th- they flow throughout the game they link together they share um, common principles uh, that make them efficient ways to stand up or to go from back to belly or whatever it is and that's what we look for that's what I look for that's what I teach and that's what I have my students drill and then through the uh, rolling and through competition, through the opponent process, every student will find a different way to apply those fundamentals in a completely unique way. And by the time a student gets to be a purple belt, they've gone from white to purple. They're, they're gonna have an incredibly unique game. But, but they will all share those core fundamentals, otherwise they wouldn't be purple belts. And that's always been my philosophy for teaching jujitsu. jitsu I think it's very important. I think when you steer away from the fundamentals, you actually inhibit creativity as opposed to enhancing creativity. You go into a situation where you're doing something that's more paint by numbers, like a, like a jujitsu person teaching their own style. You're like, okay, they go here. I go here rather than this is why what I do from here works. I'm using this movement, this, this base posture and connection allows me to have the leverage to do that. And then that student takes that base posture and connection They figure out how it works they drill it and then they find a completely different or unique application for it that becomes their individual style and by definition fundamentals will transcend era so they're the same now as they were in the 1700s they transcend geography there's no such thing as Canadian geometry and just like you would think it would be ridiculous if I talked about Canadian geometry, it, it should be ridiculous for me to talk about a Canadian choke. Yeah. Well, they, um, they transcend body. Like I said, they'll be the same for a 110 pound woman as they are for a 260 pound man. Now how they get into them and finish may be completely different, but that aspect of the human movement by definition will be the same. They transcend venue. So whether you're doing it in a cage in front of an audience or in a parking lot because you were attacked, or on the jujitsu mat at, at your home gym, playing, um, the mechanics of the fundamentals will be the same. So geography, era, culture, time, venue—they transcend all those things. There's something that everybody needs to know how to do. You couldn't omit them from the game, um, and that's what I call fundamental.
0: There's a—I think there's a visualization on your site that I really like, which is it's a tree, right? And yeah. Essentially. The fundamentals are the trunk and the larger limbs and then yes. the specific techniques um, you know whatever is popular right now De La Hiva guard to you know um, heel hook that's that's a that's a that's like a branch correct yes and I think the critique of a lot of jiu- Jitsu teaching is that it uh, that it's sort of like here's a branch here's a branch here's a branch here's a branch and I think that any anybody in in movement as well could easily fall into this I think that we do Right. Uh, So how do we, uh, you know, one thing I use is like the Pareto distribution. What are the, what are the techniques that give me 80% of the benefit? Right. Right. Um,
1: You know, the, that tree metaphor, which is the best one I've come up with myself personally for explaining jujitsu. The roots are the base, your connection in jujitsu. That's very literally your connection to the, to the ground. And then from the base up, you build your posture, which is your your body's position in relation to your opponent's position. That's the trunk of the tree. And then from any given posture, there's only gonna be uh, so many directions of force that you can apply force, right? There's usually never less than two or more than about five. And those are the main branches of the tree. So you have your base, your posture, uh, and your pressure. And between posture and pressure, where the main branches of pressure branch off from the posture, there's what hickson calls connection but that's a it's a different conversation but base posture and then pressure and then from that flows as you said all the branches which are infinite constantly evolving ever-changing you know but it, as you just said it's far more efficient to focus on fundamentals because if for example you're rolling with somebody who has a fantastic butterfly guard mm-hmm. and they have a great butterfly guard suite for people who aren't jiu-jitsu players you know They're sweeping you with their foot and flipping you over. If they're good at the butterfly guard, they're good at the butterfly guard because they've been doing it probably for 10, 20, 30 years. And they do the butterfly guard all the time. So they experience doing the butterfly guard against all kinds of people, heavy, slow, fast, whatever. And they have all kinds of counters for whatever you do, right? If you're going to put your hand here or try and grab them here, they probably have a solution to it because they've run into that. And so then when you run into that person and, and you get swept and you you're, you find yourself at the end of a jujitsu jitsu problem, you can solve it with another branch. So, okay, they go here, This they, they, have the, they have their base, they have their posture, they have this pressure. Here's your sweep. Okay, oh, I'm going to counter the sweep by going here. But the thing is, they're probably already several moves ahead of you because all they do is, you know, a butterfly guard, which is why they're good. Yeah. But if you take away their posture or you affect their base. You deal with the problem at the roots or at the trunk of the tree. They can't even play that game until they get that base posture back. Yeah. And so it's a more efficient way to stop someone as well. That uh, makes
2: sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful analogy. Um, last question, uh, if you've got time for it, is just, um, so, you know, your one of your students is John Kavanaugh. Right? Yes. You portal has come in and taught movement to Conor McGregor. Yep. So I'm curious what your perspective is on the interaction of this broader movement culture and martial arts. And what I really like to think about is basically what can the martial artists benefit from the movement and where can how can we as general movement thinkers benefit from a deeper understanding of martial arts?
1: Sure, yeah, um yes, he does work with uh with um Connor and John um I met him briefly when Connor fought um jose Aldo at, mm-hmm. in vegas. Uh, I've never trained with him, but uh here's what I would say about that is connor is a is a very intelligent fighter, obviously, John is an extremely intelligent coach and you'll notice every time Connor fights as he did this last time when he was working with the, the shoulder bumps, um, there's always something new that they're bringing to the table. Yeah. And the reason there's always something new they're bringing to the table is because Connor and John understand very well what I just talked about, that they have the base posture and pressure. They understand the fundamentals and, and it's not just the fundamentals of fighting, but even at a, at a broader context and in, in, in the bigger picture, it's the fundamentals of human movement. In fact, you've heard Connor, I think talk about that a few times before he's, he's mentioned that, but what Connor is fascinated by I think is the fundamentals of how human beings move and because he breaks things down and John breaks things down at such a fundamental level, they can find gaps or holes or places where they could exploit another fighters weakness. You know, he's not going to be two moves behind countering somebody's movement. Mm-hmm. He's going to be much earlier in the sequence, countering somebody's base and posture, countering somebody's distance. Um, and that's part of what makes him so effective. Yeah. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really appreciate getting to have this conversation with you. Yeah, yeah. Now that we're on um, lockdown quarantine, <laughs> I'd be happy to do it again. I've got to go run and help my wife real quick though. We've got little ones need some help.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's definitely keep in contact as soon as the, the COVID thing's over. I, I plan to come down and do what we talked about before where We'll we'll film and train and uh, awesome. go deep into it. So
1: you're always welcome. And um, let me know when this goes up and I'll make sure I put it out there uh, on the social media to all our members.
0: Will do. Thank you very much, Matt.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course if you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener funded podcast and through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things and we look forward to talking to you next time.